few weeks ago, uh, I was praying about where do I go last week uh, in preparing for the sermon, and God kind of shifted my heart. He took me, I took the long way to get back to where we started. I shared that last week. Um, We'd been in Matthew chapter 3. We're actually going to Matthew chapter 4 now. But the context of this, this, it says wilderness up here. It's a season of preparation in Jesus' life. It's a season of preparation when he got baptized. Uh, the Father spoke to him, confirmed his identity, and he's beginning his, his ministry. And um, ecclesiastically, church-wide, we're kind of in this season. I know more traditional denominations, they talk about the Lenten season, a season of preparation and considering the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this series is really kind of meant as a preparation for us in leading up to Easter, a preparation of, of us getting to the place in our lives where we acknowledge the cross of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and how that compelled us to be able to be salt and light in this world. It's really kind of the reflection time in what we're going through. Uh, so we were in uh, Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to read this, this encounter of Jesus in the wilderness Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil then took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so, oops, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Uh, last week we began this talking about the first temptation that Jesus looked at, or that he experienced in the wilderness. Remember what those verses said, that in Matthew 4, the Spirit of God led Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted, right? I mean, that's what we read. And it said that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and after that time he was hungry. Novel. Um, but that's the position in which Jesus was. And knowing his vulnerability, we talked about last week, the enemy, he attacked him in his vulnerability. He looked at that place in which he was vulnerable, and he said, I'm going to attack him there. And so he used these words. We're going to look at these words again today. If you are the Son of God, you make these stones come to bread. And we talked about last week, really the emphasis was, the enemy's temptation was that Jesus should prove himself. And now we all face this reality where people are trying to tell us to prove ourselves. If you're a Christian, then you should do this. If you're that, then do this. And, and the point of it was that we don't have to prove ourselves because God has already proven us. We don't have to prove ourselves because if we are a child of God, if we are who, 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 who we say we are, then we've accepted the righteousness that has come through Jesus Christ. So that was where we were last week. This week, we're going to continue into the second temptation. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
I'm going to tell you as a pastor this week, uh, as I was preparing the sermon, I told Greg this morning, just because I know the way his mind works, this was like an onion. And I started peeling layers and layers of the onion. And I still know there's a lot more layers to peel. And so hopefully as I preach on some of this stuff, if there's pieces of this, this is very intriguing uh, as a body. Um, this is very intriguing in the layers that are in this, these, what, three verses. Um, take some time this week and maybe open your Bible up or maybe read about it a little bit. Ask the Lord what he's saying to you. I'm just going to scratch the surface of the onion. I, I think there's a lot more to this that I haven't even been able to fully unpack. But the first thing he says, uh, verse 5, I even un- underlined it. Um, it says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest place of the temple. Now, this is interesting because all of a sudden position is changing in the temptation. Right? Because last week we were in the wilderness. It's where Jesus was hungry and the enemy tested him here. So this week the temptation starts. And, and I think that we have to take note of this when we look at the temptation. The enemy then takes Jesus. And where does he take him? We're in the holy city. To the temple. So where, where is the enemy taking Jesus? He's taking him to the, to the holy city and, and, and to the highest point on the temple or, or the highest part of the temple. And I believe, and this is going to be a clue and I'm going to come back to it, there's a reason in which the enemy is taking Jesus to the temple of God. I mean, that's where this temptation is taking place, whether it's a physical or a metaphysical or I don't know exactly how it happened. But but we're sold. He he took him to the temple. And and so this is this position of temptation. And then what happens? He asked that same question, right? If you are the son of God. And it's interesting because I feel like last week when we looked at this question, if you are the son of God, it really emphasized to me the you. If you are, prove yourself. Show yourself if that's who you are. Like, if you are who you say you are, prove it. But see, this time, I feel like we're using the same question with just a little bit different angle. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. Because He, who's He? Because God will command the angels concerning you. So this time I feel like we're not saying if you are the son of God. I think we're saying if you are the son of God. And rather than testing yourself, we're going to test God. Rather than asking to prove yourself, we're going to have you prove God. We're going to have God prove himself to you. Do you see the difference there? I mean, it's just slight. It's just just a little bit. It's the same words. Again, we talked about when Jesus was baptized, God said the words, this is my Son, that's who he is, in whom I'm well pleased. And so now the enemy is saying, okay, you survived this temptation to prove yourself, but what about your father? Will he prove himself? So coming back to my location. Like rather than going like to the highest mountain in all the world or the highest cliff in all the world, let's go where? To your father's house! <laughs> There's no excuse for him not to see you. There's no excuse for him not to hear you. I mean, this is the presence of God. Remember, this is before the curtain was torn. So there was the Holy of Holies there where the presence of God dwells. Like we're knocking on his door. He can hear you scream when you jump. 
I really believe that this week the temptation isn't nece- is not about proving yourself, but it's really this idea of of testing God. Like we got through you proving yourself, but what about your God? Why don't you put him to the test? And what is the question of testing God really asking? Isn't it asking is God who he says he is? Hey, why don't you jump off that thing? And God, he's good. He'll hear you screaming as you fall, so he'll send the angels and they'll come save you. I mean, it's just that easy. I mean, if he's God and he's your father and he loves you, I mean, what else would he do? And the enemy is putting a question of the character of God. He's questioning the character of God in this moment. That's the tempt, that's the temptation, that's the testing in which he brings. And how does he bring it? Huh. Isn't it funny? Last week, the weapon Jesus used for the temptation was the word of God. We got an enemy, he's not really uh, that savvy. I mean, he is really savvy, but what did he do? Hey, you used a weapon. I'm going to use a weapon. Huh? We've got to be real about our enemy. He's looking for ways to attack, so he's going to do it whatever way he can. And he saw that Jesus wielded an effective weapon, so hey, why don't I try this thing? It worked for him. Why don't I try it now? Again, this is a chosen moment for Pastor Steve. I'm not inside the devil's head, thankfully. But isn't it what seems? I mean, he didn't quote the scripture the first time. Now this time? What's he do? Well, you, you answered me with Scripture last time, so I'm going to use the Word of God. And he says to Jesus, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It's written. You know where it's written? Huh. I don't have that finished. Um, Psalm 91. This is 1 through 7, if you were wondering. The seven's on the bottom, not on the top. And we'll get to that. But this is the 91st Psalm. We've heard this Psalm. We all know this Psalm, right? We sing a song about this song, at least one, if not multiple songs about the 91st Psalm. We, we talked about it when we had COVID. We talked about the, the pestilence and, and the things that come against us. I mean, this is a Psalm that everybody knows. And so the devil's taken probably one of the, the most well-known psalms, and he's quoting it to Jesus. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Here's verse 9. If you say, the Lord is my refuge. Right? If you're the Son of God, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, if... Then what? No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Let me say, that's the word of God. I mean, this is the psalm of David. He sang this song. We all sing it. We all know it. We all can say it together. 
And it says those very words. I mean, if you have accepted the, the Most High as your dwelling, if you're living in, in, in God, then, then what does he say? The promise is that he'll send his angels concerning you. I'm going to tell you the strategy of twisting the word of God is not a new strategy. The enemy's taken the very word of God. I mean, it's just about word for word. The only difference is where it says to guard you in all your ways. That's the only omission from that whole quote that, that, that the enemy gave. He took the very word of God and he used the word of God to, to, to try to convince Jesus to do something that wasn't the will of the Father. Right? Isn't that what he's trying to do here? I'm going to tell you it's not an unusual tactic. I'm going to tell you, it's not something that, that, that we don't experience even today. People take the word of God, and they take it out of context, and they try to convince the children of God to do things that the Father doesn't want them to do. I'm going to say a word, love. Oh, no. The world tells us that we must love, and they tell us how much we must love, right? And if God is love, then you're going to love this way. And they tell us how we're supposed to love and that we're supposed to love by accepting. We're supposed to love by just saying everything's okay. And we're supposed to love by coddling. But God says, I am love. The nature of God is love. Why are we letting the world tell us what love is when God has already shown us what love is? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us so that our sins could be forgiven. Why should love become a justification for sin? Right? Isn't that what the enemy does? I mean, there's a scripture in one Corinthians. Paul says it twice. Boy, this could be a great scripture for me to hold on to. Twice he says in the book of First Corinthians. I can say that. I'll say it once just to get it out. First Corinthians, because the next part is the part I messed up every time in my devotion. In First Corinthians, twice he says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Hey, man, the enemy, that's a great word. You want to do that? Hey, everything's permissible. The enemy comes and, and you're wrestling with, should I? Hey, Scripture says it may not be good, but it's benefit. I mean, it's permissible. It's okay. Right? Paul says it twice. I mean, he doesn't say it just once, but twice. Once in, in chapter 6 and once in chapter 10. So Paul must be saying, it's alright just to go ahead and try it. It's alright to do things that, that, that aren't okay with God. It's alright to like just, it, it's, it's okay. It may not be good for you. Right? I mean, isn't that the way the enemy works? He starts to, to take the word of God and twist it. That's not the intent of Paul. What Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5 or chapter 6, right before these verses, he's talking about acts that will cause you to not experience the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about acts that will disqualify you absolutely from the presence of God. He's not saying to them that, hey, it's okay to continue doing this. What he's actually doing is probably quoting the argument that's being presented to him when he says, you say everything's permissible. Right? You see the difference? So Paul's writing a pastoral letter to a church, and what he's hearing back is that, hey, the argument about us living righteous lives, about us doing what God wants us to do and living honorable lives, is that everything's permissible. That's what you guys are teaching people. It may not be beneficial, but God loves you. That's where he's going with it. I mean, that's the argument. But we have an enemy who, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He likes to twist the word of God. This isn't new. 
Matthew chapter 7. These are the words of Jesus. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Listen to this. This is Paul's letter to Timothy. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth, huh? And turn aside the myths. But we can't use the truth to become a myth, can we? I mean, isn't that really the, the, the issue that we face? I mean, the, 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 they're saying love. They're saying everything's permissible. They're saying everything's okay. It's not. It's the truth. It's the word of God. Yeah, it's the truth, but it's a twisted truth. It's not the whole truth. It's not the truth that God has revealed. The enemy says, hey, God said, the Father says, hey, I will save you. I'll command my angels. Do I have any doubt that God will command his angels to save his children? No, I do not. It's the word of God. It's there. I mean, actually, what happens at the end of the wilderness? Did you notice it? The angels came and took care of Jesus. Huh. I mean, it's a promise of God. It's the absolute truth of God. But sometimes people take the truth. Church, this is why we have to be good stewards of the word of God. If we don't know what the word says, how do we know if someone's using it correctly? If we don't know the word that was made flesh and made his dwelling to live among us, we don't know when someone quotes the word and, and uses it against us to bring death in our lives. The time is coming when people will gather around those who say what itching ears want to hear. The time is coming when we will want to, what are itching ears saying? We want to fulfill our fleshly desires more than we want to please our king. Paul even dealt with this. Guess what? He's back in Corinth. This is the second letter. Such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising that if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Like this is, this is continuing, church. This is a warning for us. This is a layer for us to explore that, that, that we know the word of God well enough that we can know when it's being misused. And if we don't know, then we have good counsel around us that can help us figure it out. Huh? I hope if someone ever felt like Pastor was using a scripture out of out of context, they would be willing to come to me and have a conversation with me. Uh, I, I try to do my best to be a steward of God's word, but but ultimately we we listen to sermons, we hear things, and and man, they sound good and they got great illustrations. But it's our responsibility. It's your responsibility how you receive the word of God. It's your responsibility to discern if this teacher, if this podcast, if this reading, if this friend is using the word of God correctly. It's not anybody else's but yours. That's a deep layer. And Jesus responds. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Right? When he says that, he's taking us back. Uh, we went to Deuteronomy last week, if you recall that. Jesus in this wilderness temptation. 
he's kind of traveling kind of along that same wilderness idea that we see uh, with the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Um, some of the words he's speaking are, he's quoting now Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I believe, is where the quote comes from, where Moses says the exact same thing. Uh, but, but his words say, at, at Massa, uh, yeah, Massa is where he says. So uh, the scriptures say, do not test the Lord your God at Massa. For you tested the Lord your God at Massa, is what it says in Deuteronomy 16. And Moses is, is teaching the Israelites in this season the lessons they've learned before they get to do what? Go into the promised land before they're going to go into the land that their father has promised. And so he's speaking of, and I want to read this in Exodus 17, the actual encounter, what happened? Do not test the Lord your God. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. That's not a place I want to be. Um, Traveling, and it really didn't mean that, but anyway, that's besides the point. Um, Traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Now, I want to pause right there. Does that sound like a test? I mean, really? What's the problem? They've just come out of the desert of sin. That sounds like a pretty desperate place. They've come out of a place that is defined by not having much water to drink. And they've come into this new place, and what's the problem? We're thirsty. We just want to drink, Moses. Doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. I'll come back to that. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Well, we're not testing God. We're just thirsty. I mean, isn't that the flesh in us wants to say that? We're not testing God. We're just saying we just came out of the desert of sin. And now we just want some, some, something to drink. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and livestock die of thirst there. I want you to look at this word right here. Who brought them up out of Egypt? Huh? Who did it? It was God. All of a sudden, they're forgetting who led them to this point. And they're quarreling with Moses because now they're saying, hey, why did you bring us here? There's, there's something that's changing in their heart position. Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you at the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Why is this a test? Because where where did they just come from? Where did I say they came from? Well, before that, they were in Egypt, right? Yeah. I mean, they were were let out from, from Egypt. Once they got out of Egypt, they got out pretty miraculously. There was this whole plague thing and this whole deliverance thing that happened. There were these old armies that were chasing them. And that same staff that he struck the rock with, he parted the Red Sea with. They're the same ones that God said, hey, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to lead you. So he gave them a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to guide them. He's the same one that at a time before this, they were thirsty. And what did they do? They asked God for a drink. And what did he do? He caused them to have drink. They were the same ones that said, God, we're hungry. And he gave them food to eat. But now they're thirsty again. So what are they doing? They begin to 
question the very presence of God, the very character of God. God says, I am, right? He promises all throughout Scripture, I will never leave you or forsake you. Walt read about the tent. There was a tent. There was a, there was a place in which the presence of God dwelled. They could, see a, they could see a physical presence of the presence of God. And now, we're thirsty. Is God even who He says He is? Are we really children of God or just followers of Moses? They start to question the, 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 the nature of God. You see, the, the issue with this temptation is, is that we, we test God, we don't trust God. There's something different between testing God and trusting God. When we trust God, we say, hey, we're thirsty, but I believe that God is going to, to give us a drink. We don't want to go back to the place of slavery. We don't want to go back to a place of bondage. We don't want to question what God has done up until this point. That's what truly happens when we have these tests. We, we test God because of the efforts of men, and then we wrestle with it. The, the hope is to get us to not trust God. The hope is to get us to, to, to believe that God isn't who God said he is. Two more examples. I'm almost done. That was a hallelujah, by the way, just in case anybody was wondering. I got the gift of interpretation. Look at what happened later in Jesus' life. I love this. When I read this, man, it jumped out. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. This is right before the, the arrest. This is right before the Lord, the Last Supper. Um, or right after that. Anyway, it's this, this right before the, the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into... Uh, he's out away and praying for the disciples to not fall into temptation. So my mind goes back there, all right? He withdrew, and my brother-in-law said this was a, a stretch, but it was just interesting to me that we have a reference to a stone here. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. And he prays what? Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is wrestling with the reality of, do I want to trust God or do I want to test God? Like God, I, I mean, I, I don't really want this cup right now. I, I, I mean, if there's another way... That's great. Reveal it. Take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. I'm not going to drop the cup just because I don't want to and say, God, catch the cup if you really want me to do this. I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to trust you with, with what? Jumping off the pillar of, uh, uh, of the temple. You know what's interesting? This is just a sidebar. Um, Jesus' brother James, do you know how he died? This is just a little layer. He was pushed off the same pinnacle that Jesus was taken to. That's how Jesus' brother James dies. Just an interesting thing. So, so, so Jesus knows what's coming, right? He knows that he's literally going to take the sin of man on himself. He knows that he's going to a cross to die a physical death. He knows that that's what's coming, right? Isn't that the same temptation the enemy's putting before him? And his response is, no, God, I don't want to get out of it, but not my will, but yours be done. And then once again, what do we see? 
the promise of God. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I love God. I love the way God works. Because, see, he is, right? And the enemy is trying to tell him to test God to do something. He says, I'm not going to test the Father, but the Father gives him the promise. Do you see that in there? I'm not going to test God, but God's going to give the promise in which, in which you're trying to give me. Yeah, he's going to do that because why? That's who God is, and I know who God is. And just later on, as Jesus is carrying the cross, or he's on the cross, and the crowd is shouting at him, the soldiers are shouting at him, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Listen to what verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Does that sound familiar? If you are the son of God, won't the father save you? If you are the son of God, won't the father just come and, and, and take you off of the cross? I mean, this, this, this temptation is a temptation that, that, that we wrestle through time and time again. But the reality comes back to trust, not test. You guys can come forward. I really think goodness of God is a great place to, to, to finish today. I don't know if you pick something else out, but that's what I'd like to see. Even if yours was better, I want mine. <laughs> You know, this morning, I think the question is, is the enemy testing you? Is he tempting you? You know, at times in life, we're wrestling with the reality of someone or something or somehow saying, for God, if you are, if you're a child of God, Wrestling with the reality of our identity in Christ. If you're the son of God, if you're the daughter of God. We just heard him use the words son and daughter in the prophetic word he gave to us this morning. If that's who you are, then won't your God do this for you? Like if that's who you are, then why isn't your God doing that? If that's who you are, then why isn't God proving himself? If that's who you are, just, just test him. Just try him. I want you to stop listening to that voice and start looking at all that God has done. How do I trust God? I mean, I talked about that was the Israelites' issue. They didn't look at all that God had done. They didn't look at all that, that he'd accomplished. They didn't look at the places he was there, at the miracles he'd done. They didn't look at the deliverance. They didn't look at, at, at the plagues. And, and they didn't look at all that, that he had done up until that point. They forgot about the water. And they forgot about the manna. And they forgot about the quail. That's how they put the Lord their God to the test. That's what they did. This morning as, as, we, as we conclude this service, I, I, I want us to think about what has, God, what has God done? What are those moments in your life where you knew the moments where you felt the goodness of God? The moments where there wasn't 
question about if God is who God says he is. The moments when 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 God showered his loves uh, among us, the moment that we discovered the beauty of forgiveness and what it meant to be set free from the bondage of slavery, the moment that that we had need and God knocked on the door, the moment that he split the Red Sea so that we knew, the moment that he called us to the place that we needed to be, the moment that he fulfilled the promise that he made to us. Father, this morning in this place, God, I know we have an enemy who still tempts and tries. And God, this morning I pray that that as a people we trust. God, that our confidence isn't shaken by the words of man, but that our confidence isn't found in the very nature of God. A nature that you've said is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A nature that you've told us is always with us. A nature that you've defined as love for us. God, this morning I pray that we can focus on your goodness so that we can trust when it's challenging. In Jesus' name. As they lead us in this course, I'm going to be up here. I'll stand with you. If there's a situation in your life that you need to trust God, if there's a situation in your life that you say, I need someone to stand with me so I can, I, I can trust God in this moment or a situation or circumstance that you're going through. As a pastor, I'll be here uh, to pray with you. God is good. God is good. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, may he turn his face towards you, grant you his peace, and may you trust God. On the mountaintop and in the valley. In the wilderness and in the sanctuary. Because he is. Amen? Be blessed.